We've been in the book of Genesis for a few months, and it's been interesting to see just everybody's different reactions on things that we've grown up with, for many of you. It, Bible stories from the book of Genesis, like, wow, we're seeing it in a whole new way. But there's a reason we've gone back to Genesis, and I usually, we usually start with someone reading in Scripture for me, but I want to kind of lay the groundwork as to why, remind us again why we're in Genesis. What we're reading is not just fables and legends, but this is history. And it is God's history as how he has orchestrated the path of human beings and our existence. Um, for example, we believe the book of Genesis is very scientific. It's not, it doesn't contradict science. It fulfills science, the God who created science. There's things that the Bible believes and that science believed then, and now the science tends to catch up with the Bible. For example, the Bible has said for thousands of years that the earth is a sphere. For, for centuries, people thought the earth was flat, and then when they actually studied their Bible, they realized, no, it actually is a sphere. And then, and so we knew that that, that belief was wrong and that science was wrong then. Uh, the Bible has said for thousands of years that the number of stars could not be calculated. And only 350 years ago, they thought there was approximately 1,100 stars. Now, because of the Hubble telescope, we know that there is an innumerable number of stars. And so they were wrong on that again. And then the Bible has told us that every star is unique, that they're all different, just like every human being is different. But science always said, no, they're basically the same uh, molecular content of gases, and they're all pretty much the same. And now we know, again, because of the Hubble telescope, that every star is exactly unique. In fact, every star has its own frequency with its own sound as well as its own content. And so, once again, science back then was wrong. I'm not against science. I'm against false science that has an, uh, uh, an ulterior motive. Um, the Bible has told us in the book of Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible, thousands of years ago, that air has weight. And people made fun of the Bible and said, no, air is weightless. Air doesn't have weight. But now we know that air definitely does have weight. And so once again, that kind of science was wrong. The Bible told us in the book of Leviticus that your blood is super important and that you need to take care of your blood and don't try not to touch blood that would cause infections or spread infections. And but even our first president of the United States was bled to death because they thought his blood needed to get out of his body, and they bled him to death. And that was just 236 years ago. And, of course, then the Bible was wrong on that. I mean, I'm sorry, science was wrong on that. <laughs> sorry. Um, the Bible told us thousands of years ago that the ocean floor has mountains on it. And, of course, scientists said, no, that the, the ocean is basically flat. And, of course, we've sent now... Um, deep sea diving devices that, know, that will tell us that the, the ocean floor does indeed have mountains. And did you know that almost every single day they're finding new type of creatures that live at the bottom of the ocean? Just so many that God has created. The Bible told us, and this is so important with COVID, right? Wash your hands. Wash your hands. And don't just wash your hands with any water. Wash your hands with running water. And it wasn't until about 220 years ago that doctors realized that washing your hands was actually important and even then, they started washing their hands in just bowls of water, and they realized, wait a minute, when they used running water, the, the infection went down dramatically, and so once again, the science was wrong and the Bible was right. The Bible clearly teaches in the Psalms that life begins at conception, and now there's even a debate of what conception is. We talked about that last week, but the Bible makes it very clear, but Planned Parenthood has been telling women for generations that a fetus is just nothing but a blob of tissue. And now we know it has a brainwave, a heart, heartbeat, and that a, it is a human life. And, and so now 95% of medical biologists believe that life begins at conception. But guess who the news asks about when it begins? They ask the 5%, okay? But the overwhelming majority of biomedicists, ethical medical people, that all believe that life begins at conception, and, and now it's just a debate of whether that life deserves to live or not, and they use the whole viability argument as well. Another issue is that the Bible has made it very clear from the beginning. There's two biological genders, and that is reality. It's not what your brain tells you. It's what your physiology is, and, and science believed that just up until just very few recent years when Dr. John M uh, Money who was a, a photographed children and did all kinds of perverted things, started coming up with this whole idea of multiple genders. 
the founder of this whole gender identity thing is a pervert. Uh, I can't even, you've heard me go into that story before. I won't go into it this morning. But just look at the founder of it, and you can see where it begins. And science believed that until recently, but now they're like, you know, you can choose your gender, whatever you want to be, and all kinds of crazy stuff. But we know that that is absolutely not wrong. That not, not right. It's absolutely wrong. Um, the Bible is taught for thousands of years, Old and New Testament, that homosexuality was a sin. Uh, just recently, just 25 years ago, psychologists taught that homosexuality was a psychological disorder, which is not the same as labeling as a sin. That's what starts the slippery slope. And now it's not only um, not a sin, it's meant to be normal, it's meant to be embraced, it's meant to be accepted. And both those views are actually wrong. It's more than a psychological disorder. It is, it is, a, it is a sinful behavior. You say, well, Gary, do you believe there's people who are born that way? I will tell you this, if they're born that way, they cannot and should not give in to their, their desires, okay? I believe that most people are not born that way because there's so many sets of identical twins where one is heterosexual and one's homosexual. And so how could that be if they have the exact same DNA? And yet there's hundreds, if not thousands of cases where identical twins have gone in two different lifestyles. And so, of course, we know that the overwhelming majority Approximately 96% of homosexuals have either no relationship with their father or an extremely dysfunctional relationship with their father. You can't ignore that statistic. So that is why we are looking at Genesis, because the world around us is falling apart because the world around us has rejected Genesis. They tell us that the six days is not true, that, that God created male and female is not true, and on and on and on. And so now we've got, we've got burning down cities is okay, Defunding the police is okay. You've got burning American flags. You've got the destruction of the family. In fact, we've got people saying that the family is a bad entity, that we need to rethink the family, that mom and dad is, is just that a heterosexual normative family is not normal anymore. We've got, we've got the denial of human life to where we rip it apart limb by limb. We've got this is normal. We've got in kindergarten classrooms, these people reading books to our children and your tax dollars are paying for it. We've got mass shootings in schools. We've got 26 million slaves on the planet, most of them involved in human sex trafficking and as sex slaves, while at the same time we've got children starving in parts of the world when we have more than enough food on planet Earth to feed the whole world two times over. And yet we've got people starving, and yet we can afford to buy shoes that could fill a village in the Sudan for a month. And yet that's, that's our priorities. And so you got the war in Ukraine and it's fixing and spreading it worse. And yet it's so interesting that the generation that goes to church the least is suffering anxiety and depression more than any other generation. They are turning to drugs and alcohol more than any other time in history. And all of this is because we've abandoned Genesis. We have overdoses. We've got suicide. This is not the way the world was created to be according to God's design. It is getting worse and worse because we are abandoning what God has told us clearly the way the world was meant to be in Genesis. So that's why I gave this introduction. Sophia Baez is our scripture this morning. Sophia, if you'll come up here, I'll let you use this microphone right here. How are you doing this morning? Y'all had COVID, didn't you? The whole family had it pretty bad, but we're glad that you you're here. Do you mind if I cough on the mic? Or yeah, go ahead and cough on the mic. Yeah, it's okay. All right. So it'll, be, it'll all be right there on that screen for you right there. Follow along as Sophia reads the scripture for us this morning. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. 
The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, it will surely, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Birlahai Roy. My fault, sorry. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Yeah. Father, we are thankful for your word. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to understand your word. Lord, give me strength as I teach your word. Get me out of the way and let people hear the voice of God this morning as we teach. Help us to understand what you want us to apply as a church but also individually what you would have us to hear so that we can be more like Jesus when we leave here. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, sadly, this story right here that, we, that, that Sophia just read has no heroes. <laughs> it's a pitiful story. It's, it's a very negative, dreary, depressing story until we see the gospel in this story. And I want to divide this passage up into parts. And here's what's going to be. There's the difficult situation. And, and then there's the disobedient solution to that situation. Then there's the disrespectful scorn, the divine solution, the detrimental side effects, and then finally uh, the divine seeing. So I have it alliterated to help you remember. So let's start with the difficult situation. This was a difficult situation that Abram and Sarah were in. They were promised that out of them would come a great nation, that God would bring the Messiah through them, all these wonderful promises of possessing a land and being blessed. And none of this is happening because they don't have any kids. <laughs> and they're getting older and older and older, and they're beyond the years of childbearing, and they're thinking, God has failed us. And, and where is God in all this situation? And, and it's humiliating because in this culture, having no kids is like scornful. It's like, well, what good are you if you can't have kids? Kids were so important to civilization and to culture. And having none, let alone being promised that you're going to have this great multitude and be a blessing to the whole world and you have zero, it was an embarrassing situation for Sarah. It was an embarrassing situation for Abram because they didn't know whose fault it was at this point. But she has this female Egyptian servant. Her name is Hagar. Where did they get her? Well, remember about 10 years previous, they went down into Egypt because of the famine. And Pharaoh tried to take Sarai as his wife because Abram lied about her being a sister instead of his wife because he was thinking about himself and protecting his own life. Didn't want to be killed so he could marry her. So then Pharaoh offered him all these bribes and all these gifts as an endowment. And then when, he, when God brought a plague on all the Egyptians because of him trying to mess with his wife before she could, he canceled all that. And then Pharaoh's like, get out of here. And here, take all this other stuff. You know, and he's superstitious, thinking, of, I give you stuff, God will get off my back. And so Hagar was one of the, the servants they took out of Egypt. And it's interesting, her name is Hagar, which means to flee. And we'll see, as, you saw, as uh, Sophia read, she's going to flee later in the story. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from having children. What was Sarai focused on? The here and the now. She wasn't giving God a chance for something in the future. She was looking at it from normal human eyes and not even allowing for anything that God could do that might be impossible to man. She's looking at the focus, the here and now. You hear the word secular a lot and secularism. 
The English word secular, as you can see on the screen, derives from the Latin word seculum, which means this present age. The world, this world right here, right now, and it's opposed to the religious world, which is, includes the afterlife or eternity. And it could also be defined as the liberation of man from religious and metaphysical tutelage, tutelage and the turning of his, man's attention away from the worlds beyond this world. And so when you're focused on the here and the now, and you've lost sight of eternity, you make bad decisions. If you think, hey, I'm going to indulge myself in this sin because it'll make me feel good now, but you don't think, wait, how's this going to affect my kids, my grandkids? How will this affect eternity when I stand before God? If you lose sight of eternity and you make decisions based on here and now, as Sarai did, you'll find yourself in a really bad situation. A similar situation is Jacob and Esau. Remember that? Jacob had the birthright. He was the one who was going to inherit everything. I'm sorry, Esau did. But Esau came from the field of days of hunting, and he's starving because he's caught nothing. And he smells his brother's pottage, and he says, hey, give me a bowl of soup. He goes, well, trade me for your birthright. He's like, well, I might as well, because if I don't have this soup, I'm going to die, which was an incredible exaggeration. And he, and he says, yeah, what good is my birthright? I mean, if I'm dead, so he trades his birthright, his, all of his inheritance for that, which was a foolish mistake, because what was Esau living for right here? right now. And, and young people and adults, older adults, we all make some of our worst decisions when we live for the moment. And that's what Sarai was thinking right now, is right here, right now. Behold, now is the problem. And she said, and the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Well, that's kind of harsh. The Lord has delayed her from having children. We know that later she will, but she's like, oh, God just failed me. And we start blaming God for these things. And that leads us to further complications. And so let me challenge you that no matter how difficult your situation, trust God and wait on Him. Don't go out for a quick fix solution. There's going to be times when money gets tight and you're going to be tempted to do unethical things with, that, with your money or in the way that you earn money. Don't do that. Trust God through all the situations. You, you might be older and you may be expected to be married by now. And you're like, well, God hasn't given me a wife yet. God hasn't given me a husband yet. So I'm going to compromise and marry someone. Maybe, maybe they're not perfect. and Maybe they don't believe in Christ or maybe whatever. And you have your list of problems. But you want a quick fix solution now. You're asking for trouble. So wait on God. Be patient. God is seldom early but never late. The second principle here is the disobedient solution. So they have a difficult situation and they offer a disobedient solution. So, so Sarai says, go into my servant. Now, that sounds really bizarre to us today, and it is wrong, so it should seem bizarre, but in that culture, in that part of the world they were in there, because Abram had traveled away, and he's, he's one of the few believers on planet Earth at this time, in that culture, it was okay that if your wife couldn't produce children, that one of her servants, you, know, you could have multiple wives or whatever, polygamy, we know that's wrong, we know that's, that Bible does not endorse that at all, but they're giving into the culture instead of trusting God. So again, to hurt their friends around, that would have been normal. But to us as believers, it's really awkward and it's odd. And so she puts that path in front of her husband. And of course, he doesn't resist. And they were doing what was culturally permissible, but that doesn't make it right. Our cultures changed drastically. Things that five years ago were wrong and like, ugh, are now like, no, this is okay. It's great. And it's like, what? You mean my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my thousands of years of history, every world religion, every whatever says this is wrong, but you guys now actually know, Gen Z, you know this is right. And everybody else is stupid. That's what you're telling me? And everybody's just like, well, if culture allows it, it must be okay. Did you know prior to Roe versus Wade, the overwhelming majority of Americans thought abortion was wrong. But then once it was legalized, it shifted really quickly because people were like, well, it's legal, it must be okay. There are a lot of things that are legal that are not okay. And there are things that are illegal that God says, I don't care. You do that anyway. The Bible says you ought to obey God rather than man. Now, we're supposed to be law-abiding citizens, but if the U.S. government tells me stop preaching on certain things, I'm like, start writing the citations. Let's do jail time, whatever. I'm going to obey God rather than man. We can't go with the ebbs and flows and the winds of change of our culture. Politicians do that. God's people shouldn't. 
We need to be careful. We're not just because all our friends are doing it. And that's not just a phrase for teenagers, right? That all, just because all your friends are living together, all your friends are gambling, or all your friends are doing whatever, doesn't mean we should give in to those things. She goes, and it may be, she doesn't even know if this, this plan's going to work. And the Bible says, What's not, whatsoever's not of faith is sin. So it may be that you'll obtain a child by her. And I think, and I don't know, I don't want to read too much into this, but it makes you wonder, does Sarai think, yeah, the whole reason we don't have a kid is your fault. So you go into her, and we'll see if you have a kid. You know, and I think she actually thinks that maybe she's going to prove Abram wrong, that it's actually your fault we don't have children. You're the one that's infertile, not me. So Abram, now watch this phrase, listen to the voice of Sarai. Does that sound familiar? You go back to Genesis, and there's the tree in the Garden of Eden, and God says, don't eat thereof. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. There you have what First John calls the lust of flesh, lust of eyes, pride of life. There's the, all sin falls in those three categories. She saw all this about that, and then she took of the fruit, and then she gave, just like Sarai gives Hagar to Abraham, Eve gives the fruit to Adam. You see that situation? This is a hyperlink back to Genesis 3 here. And he said to, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And in the Hebrew... Fifteen chapters later, it's the same language. Adam listens to the voice of his wife. Abram listens to the voice of his wife. And so, again, men, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying never listen to your wife. In fact, most of you need to listen to your wife a whole lot more, okay? In fact, this whole role could be reversal. We have several stories in the Bible where men are telling their wives to do things wrong. So this is not an anti-female message, okay? So don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. But you see that that it's on purpose that Moses is using the same phrase. And what, you're ha- what you see happening here is the authority that God has designed is being flipped. God's authority is that God is the head. He created man. Women, is, women and men are supposed to be a team. And the man's supposed to be the head of his household, be the one taking the lead. And that men and women together are supposed to rule and have dominion over animals. But what you see flipped in Genesis is the animal through the serpent is telling the woman what to do. The woman tells the man what to do, and the man ignores God. And instead of God being on the top of the authority structure, God is now put at the bottom of the authority structure. And you see in that carried out in this situation. Satan whispers in Sarai's ear, Hey, have you thought about having a child through Hagar? God's not coming through on his promise. Why don't you do this plan? It's culturally acceptable. So Sarai gives the idea to Abram. Abram ignores God and God's promise in the situation. So after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, so think about this, Hagar's been with him for 10 years. Don't think of slavery in this situation like, we, like the American slavery, which was brutal. A lot, these slaves were allowed to choose their spouses, allowed to buy property, allowed to do a lot of different things. A lot of times, a lot of servants would choose to stay with a master. After, it, was, it was a contractual arrangement. And again, in, in many cases, in this one, it's not because... He, the Pharaoh gave them to her, so she, she's not able to go free on her own. Again, it's not all condoned or made right, but maybe that they're close by this time. We don't know. But notice the language here. It says, Sarai, Abram's wife, in case you didn't know that. Now, Moses inserts that for a reason, because he wants you to know that one husband, one wife for one lifetime. But watch what happened. They took Hagar, the Egyptian. What is Egypt a picture of in the Bible? The world and rebellion, Okay. So he takes Hagar the Egyptian, which we already knew that, but he's repeating it on purpose, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband. He's letting you know they've already got a husband, they've already got a wife, but now we're adding a wife. So this wasn't like some one-night stand to have a kid. This is now polygamy. Who was the first person to engage in polygamy in the Bible? Anybody remember? Lamech, remember Lamech? He was an evil man. And a lot of people will point to the Bible and say, oh, polygamy, see, it's in the Bible. Well, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. There's there's locusts in the Bible. There's leprosy in the Bible. It's not saying you should have those things. It's, just, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Polygamy is always shown as a negative, uh, detrimental thing to the family. So this is not an endorsement of that. But he does take her as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. So we've gone from not trusting God to now engaging in polygamy. You see the, how this chases down the, the wrong rabbit hole. So then we go to the third thing, the disrespectful scorn, the disrespectful scorn. And when she saw, when, that, when Hagar saw, hey, I'm pregnant, she looked 
with contempt at her mistress. Now, if you look at this carefully and what the word contempt means in the Hebrew, the best thing we have for it is nanny nanny boo boo. That's about what this comes down to. She's looking at her saying, uh-huh, I'm pregnant. You're not really mature, right, Hagar? So again, you would feel sorry for Hagar, and you should. She's a victim in this situation, but she's not responding well. Sarah's not acting right. Abram's not acting mature. There's no heroes in this story. There's, every, there's human failure all over the place. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. It's like, wait a minute, Sarah, who's, whose idea was this? And now you're getting mad at me? And now all of a sudden, and she said, I gave my servant to your embrace. Wait a minute. Before it was a surrogate thing, situation, trying to have a child. Again, not right. And now all of a sudden it's a romantic thing. It's like, oh, you, you, you're in love with Hagar or whatever. And it's like, wait a minute. what? And so I can say, see Abram being in a really confused situation right here. But again, none of them are responding right. And she says, may the Lord judge between you and me. And now all of a sudden, instead of God being the uniting factor in their marriage, she's putting God between them as if he's the referee in this fight, in this situation. Really sad when you don't trust God and it can destroy your marriage. As you'll see, it probably did negative things impact to Abram and Sarah's marriage than worse than ever. They may not have ever recovered from this situation right here. And in fact, we'll see that the world didn't recover from the situation. And I'm, that's not an exaggeration. It, to this day, we're paying the price for this sin, this compromise. It says, Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant's in your power. She's your servant. No, he's not saying our servant now. He's saying your servant. You do to her as you please. Wait a man up there, Abram. You could say, hey, wait a minute, wait, Sarah. I understand you're upset, but this was your idea. I'm at fault. I shouldn't have given in to your idea. But now you're going you're gonna to want to mistreat her because of your bad idea and me going along with it. That's not fair. No, Abram's a coward. As he, like, just like he lied about his spouse twice before, or he will twice. He's, he just says, hey, do what you want with her. So then Sarai dealt harshly, which is the same Hebrew word which says that Abram... Mem- Years from now, your, your children will be in Egypt and Pharaoh will deal harshly with them. So here it is, a Jew treating an Egyptian harshly. And what's going to happen later is when they reap what they've sown, you're going to have the Egyptians treating the Israelis, the Jews, harshly. And so what did, he, what did Pharaoh do to treat, we know this future tense, what did Pharaoh do to treat the, the Jewish slaves harshly? Remember? They had to build bricks without straw, and he doubled the workload. He did all kinds of stuff. I'm sure this is what Sarah did. It wasn't just dirty looks. It was like making her do more chores, more work. And of course, remember, they had hundreds and hundreds of employees. Remember, they had 318 guys that were just to go into battle. So that just, the young guys that went into battle, they had hundreds of employees. And so she's telling all the, hey, you guys make sure Hagar is working from sunup to sundown and then some. And she's piling on the workload for Hagar. So that brings us, after all these failures, it does bring us to the divine solution. God steps into these problems and tries to offer a solution. And notice that it doesn't say an angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord. And something we learned a couple weeks ago is this is what's called a Christophany where Christ appears in the Old Testament. And he hasn't been born into the world. That's the incarnation. This is just a supernatural appearance in physical form. So the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, comes there. And we see this happen eight times in the Old Testament. Abram has received the Christophany. Moses, Balaam, Israel as a nation saw that. Gideon, Samson's parents, David, Elijah. Interesting, seven individuals and then one uh, collectively as a nation that Christ makes these appearances. So the angel of the Lord found her. I am so glad that God comes and seeks us. The Bible says no man seeks God. Jesus said in Luke 19.10 that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The only reason I can stand before you today as a born-again Christian, a child of God, is because Jesus Christ sought me. I wasn't seeking Him. I wanted to live my own life, do my own thing, Make myself my own self-made man, my own success. But Jesus Christ came and sought me. And that's true for anybody who knows Christ. He sought you. And he, he stirred circumstances around your life so that you'd open up your eyes, open up your ears to be open to hear the light of the glorious gospel. 
And it says, and when, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, notice he calls her by what she should be doing. Where have you come from and where are you going? When life gets really whacked <laughs> and you find everything upside down and crazy in your life, you're like, man, how did I get here? Ask yourself these two questions. Well, where did I come from? Maybe you've strayed from the path. Maybe you've strayed from what God would have you to be doing, and you're like, now I can take responsibility for this mess because I know where I was. And then the next question is, where are you going? Are you just thinking about where you are right here, right now? Or are you looking to the future where you want your life to be? Are the things you've done this weekend, this week, contributing to where you want to go? Are you heading in the right direction? And so God's asking some really great questions here of Hagar to get her to see, hey, where did you come from? You used to live in Egypt. You were probably treated a whole lot worse than Abraham and Sarah treated you. Now, things are rough right now. Sarah's being a jerk. Abram's being a coward. Yeah, I get that. But you can't just run every time you come through a difficult situation. And, and where are you going? You're going back to Egypt? You know how they treat women there? A whole lot worse than what you've been through. So think about that. Stop and think about that. And she said, I'm fleeing, which is what her name means, to flee, from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return. Now, I put myself in Hagar's situation, which is difficult for a guy, but I'm trying. And I look at that and I go, man, I'm a servant. I've been forced to spend an evening with an old man. And now I'm pregnant with his kid. And his wife, who had this stupid idea, is now treating me harshly. And you want me to go back? God sometimes asks us to do difficult things. Sometimes asks us to do things that don't make any sense, okay? But he says, I not only want you to go back, I want you to submit to her. And, and so we are asked sometimes to submit in difficult situations. In fact, in Romans chapter um, 13, it says, let every person, that includes you and me, right, be subject to the governing authorities. Now, Paul wrote this in the first century when Nero is emperor. You know what Nero did to Christians? You know how unfair Nero was? And Paul says, I don't care what kind of jerk you have in the White House, <laughs> no pun intended here, I don't care who's in charge of your country right now, you submit to authority. Unless they tell you not to preach the gospel or do something that's unbiblical, you submit. You pay. Think about that. Think about how heavily Israel was taxed. And Jesus says, hey, give me a coin. Whose picture's on this coin? Caesar's. Give the Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Yeah, I know the taxes are unfair, but just pay them anyway. You're not here to be uh, politically involved. You're here to change the world, to be salt and light in a difficult situation. There are times you have, how many of you, let me just ask this way, how many of you have ever had a boss who was a total jerk? I'm, my hand's up, okay? I've had bosses that were just making my career more difficult, but you still have to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. You still have to go along with things. You still have to be respectful, and God calls you. In it. Now, does God ever bring about change in a situation? Absolutely he does. But often God asks you to stay in a hard situation because he's going to make it better. And if you run from it, you never get to see what God could have done in that situation. So the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. Now, does that sound familiar? That's the promise he gave to Abram. And what, even though Abram and Sarah deviated from God's plan with a disobedient solution, God says, hey, I've already said, Abram, whatever kids you have, I'm going to multiply them. And so he does. Now, not all of it's for the good, but we'll see here in a second. So there's, whenever you stray from God's path, there are going to be detrimental side effects. And we're going to see what some of these are. So the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant. She's like, duh, yeah, I am. But he does an angelic ultrasound and says, you're going to bear a son. She didn't know that at this point. There's no way she could have known. But the angel of the Lord knows. And he says, and you shall call his name Ishmael. In this culture, who named kids? The fathers did, but, but he say, hey, Abram's being a jerk. I'm going to let you name the kid. And here's what I want you to name the kid. I want you to name him Ishmael, which means God will hear. God will hear. At this point, she's crying out to God thinking, are you even listening? Are you even listening? And he goes out and meets her personally. Think about all the times that God met with people personally and how many times it was single women that were down and out. It's amazing. God lifts up women and exalts them. He's the one meeting with them personally. Who, who was the witnesses of the eyewitnesses of the, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? 
It was women. So don't think that the Bible is being chauvinistic here, that he's, he's coming to her rescue after she's been mistreated by a man. And he says, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. When you think that you've prayed and prayed and prayed and God's not listening, just be patient. He's saying, I am listening. And he comes to her rescue at the right time. And he says, and he shall be a wild donkey. Now, donkeys at this time are worth a, like a, a, a nice pickup truck. Donkeys do a lot of work. But then you have a wild donkey. It's like, pff, not only does it not help, it destroys everything. You know, if the donkey gets loose, it tears the tent apart, it breaks the fences, it scares off other the, the good animals. A wild donkey is a pain in the neck. Or I could say a pain in the and be a donkey, right? Okay, but anyway, I will say that. So this is a wild donkey. Like, there's so much potential, and yet you're just being a mess. And he's saying that this is what Ishmael will be. And it's not just talking about Ishmael individually. It's saying as a people. His people are going to be this way. In fact, this, this people that will come from Ishmael, their hand, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. And so in other words, here's Isaac, the son that you're going to have, and Ishmael's children are going to live all around them. So he's prophesying where they'll live and how they'll behave. And if this isn't the truth till today, even to today, look at the Arab nations that surround, and they even cover the exact territory from Shur to Havilan, just like the Bible predicted. All those nations, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Qatar, on and on the list go. They're exactly where God said they'd be to this day, thousands of years later. And they're surrounding Isaac, or Israel, if you will. And what have the Arab nations done since 1948? But nothing but trouble. Now, again, there are good people. In fact, years ago, I used to play basketball every Monday night with a bunch of guys from Lebanon. They were some of the greatest guys in the world. There are good Christians in these countries, too. But politically, their leaders are evil kings and dictators. And they've done nothing but cause trouble all over the Middle East. In fact, if you look at the conflicts that are going on out today, you've got Saudi Arabia having conflict with Iran, Saudi Arabia having conflict with Yemen, Saudi Arabia having conflict with Lebanon, Lebanon having conflict with Iran, Bahrain versus Lebanon, and then everybody has a problem with Qatar. It's just like they cannot get along with each other. It's not, that doesn't even count the problem that they have with Israel. They have conflict amongst themselves. And isn't that what God prophesied? That his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. There's, and they will dwell against on the sides of Israel, the kinsmen, or Isaac. So according to Islam, Ismael, which is Ishmael, is regarded as a prophet and a messenger. And he's the ancestor to the Ishmaelites in Islam. So basically the roots of Islam are here. And he's the son of Abraham, spelled differently than we would, and born to Hajar, which is Hagar. Ishmael is also associated with Mecca, and he's the one that built the Kaaba. So according to Islamic history, Ishmael went on to do all these things, and so he's the founder of not only the Arab nations, but of the Islamic religion. And we know the issues that that, that has caused. Now, take a deep breath, okay? Because we're, we are about to jump into the deep end here, okay? Are you ready to jump into some deep scripture here? All right, so be ready. Hold on here. We're going to talk about what this really means. Look at this history that just happened. We've seen how it's alive today and how all the troubles in the Middle East started right here with Sarai and Abram's compromise. But I want you to see the big picture, not what I think of it, but what Paul says about it. So in Galatians 4.21, the book of Galatians was written because Paul started several churches in Galatia. People got saved, the majority of them were Jews, but there was also Gentiles, and they were having church together, and they were getting along fine. And then a bunch of Jews from Jerusalem came into their churches after Paul had left and said, hey, Paul did a good job, but he's not completely right. You know, you have to actually become a Jew first before you can become a Christian. So you need to be circumcised and you need to follow the law and trust in the gospel. What were they doing? They're adding works to salvation. Do works have anything to do with your salvation? No. Everybody give me a zero. This is how much works contribute to your salvation. But the Jews are trying to slip this false doctrine in and they're saying, hey, but you've got to obey the law too. And so Paul, he's angry right now. He starts off the letter, he says, oh, you, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he calls these false teachers a lot of bad names. And he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, don't you even listen to the law? Have you not studied Genesis? And then he takes them back to Genesis. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave 
woman and one by a free woman. That's important. Slave and free. Slave and free. He's talking about salvation, but keep in mind, slave and free. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, which means it was man's idea, Abram and Sarah trying to change God's plan. This was when they were in the flesh thinking of the moment, and that's where that came from. He said, but while the son of the free woman was born through the promise, it was a miracle that God had promised when Abraham was young, and God kept his promise. So one was born because of a bad decision in the flesh, and one was born because they trusted God, and God delivered on his promise. And now he said, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now notice what Paul's doing. He said, this one you can interpret allegorically. He didn't say that about other passages of Scripture. A lot of people want to interpret everything in the Bible allegorically. What's that? That didn't really happen. There really wasn't a Noah's flood. Noah's it's just a story. It's just an allegory. And Paul knows that people do that. He said, no, no, don't do that. He said, this one you can, which Paul's not saying it didn't actually happen because it obviously did. I mean, these Arabs and Jews are here today because of this. He's saying, but you can look at this history and do an allegorical interpretation. The only time you interpret anything in the Bible allegorically is if it says it, it's meant to be that way, by the way, okay? So that's why Paul is making this very clear, that this one can be interpreted this way. Now, he says, these women, Sarai and Hagar, are the two covenants. What are the two covenants? The Old Testament or Old Covenant and the New Co Covenant. I said we're going to get deep, so hang with me here. One is from Mount Sinai, which means, where did Moses get his Ten Commandments? On Mount Sinai. So one is talking about the Ten Commandments, bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. So the Old Testament law, you do this, this, and this, and be perfect, and you'll live, that represents Hagar. And now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which picture of the world again. She corresponds to this present Jerusalem. So she, she's the doppelganger of Jerusalem. She's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above and it's above, not just geographically, but spiritually. She is our mother. Where do we get our spiritual birth from? From grace, the New Testament. So you got slaves under the Old Testament, grace and freedom born again under the New Testament. So brothers, we are not the children of slaves of the law. In other words, someone come tell, tells you, yeah, you have to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but you better keep the Ten Commandments or you're going to go to hell. They're just trying to put you back into slavery. We are born of the free woman, the, the new covenant, the new covenant. So there's always been this conflict. Hagar and Sarai, they don't like each other now that this has happened. It's, what's funny is they may probably have gotten along before that, but now this has come bef between them. You've got Ishmael versus Isaac. Did these two guys get along later? No, they, they, they butt heads all along. And then, the, so that's what we have living today and all throughout history, Arabs and Israel doing this all the time, and they always will until Jesus comes. And then you've got basically the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the New Testament doing this. Not because they contradict each other, but the Old Testament says, hey, do all these things. Can you do them? Nope, you failed. And then you got the New Testament saying, hey, you don't have to do all these things. Christ fulfilled all that. Every good thing he ever did is poured into you, and every sin that you've ever committed has been put on him on the cross. So don't put yourself back under the law. The law was to show you, in Galatians 3, that you're a sinner. It'd be like if you told one of your little kids, like, tell Benjamin, hey, jump this high, jump this high, and he can't do it. You say, see, Benjamin, you're short. You can't jump, okay? I'm just proving to you that you're a little kid, and you can't do this, all right? And so God puts the Ten Commandments to say, hey, here's what it's like to be perfect. Now go ahead and try. And how many people have succeeded to meet this standard? Only Christ. And Christ shows you, see, all y'all are sinners. I'm perfect. Why don't we trade places? You take my perfection. I'll take your sin. And that's what the law was meant to do. The law was not bad. It was to show us that we are bad. And so you've got this conflict between law and grace. And so when churches tell you you've got to be a good person and you'll go to heaven. They're trying to put you under the law and guess what you're going to do? You're going to fail. If I choose to be good, it's because I'm thankful for what Christ has done, not because I'm trying to earn anything with him. You see the difference there? And so when churches introduce, well, yeah, trust in Jesus Christ and get baptized or trust in Jesus Christ and speak in tongues or trust in doing this and give lots of money to the church or trust this and they add anything, even though those things are all good things, when they add it to the plan of salvation, that's not right. That's not right. It is Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. 
That's it. It's Jesus plus nothing, Jesus minus nothing. So you've got this constant battle between works and faith, and that's what Paul's teaching here. So you've got a difficult situation. God promised us a kid. We're old people. Where's the kid? What do we do? Well, they made a, a disobedient solution. Don't give in to that. Don't do what they did. And that led to disrespectful scorn. Abraham disrespected Hagar. Hagar disrespected Sarai. Sarai disrespected both of them. This, this whole thing was falling apart because of their disobedience. But God steps in through the angel of the Lord and says, hey, I'm going to bless you anyway. And then, but there were still detrimental side effects. There are things that I have done. There are things that you have done in your past that God has completely forgiven, right? Amen? But you're still paying for it today. There's always detrimental side effects for what we do. And now this brings us to the last point, the divine seeing, the divine seeing. So she called the name of the Lord. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. She felt like nobody in the world saw her situation. Abram doesn't care about me. He doesn't see what I'm going through. Sarai definitely doesn't see my situation. Does anybody see my situation? Does anybody see me right here? What now? I'm going, here I'm in the middle of the desert, running, fleeing from her, stop, and stopping to get a drink of water. And here the Lord comes and meets me in this difficult situation. Don't run from every difficult situation. Sometimes that's where God chooses to meet you. She calls him the God of seeing. It's interesting, the Lexham English Bible call, says it this way. So she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, you are El Roy. El Roy, one of the names of God, which means the God who sees me. By the way, those of you who are following the chosen, this story is bared out really well in a, in a lot of episodes about being seen by God, especially for women. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. And this is like a, if you can hear it in Hebrew, which I don't speak Hebrew, but if you study it, it's really an amazing play on words. It's like, I was watching out for you, but all along you were the one watching out for me. Or you saw me and now I can see you. Or another way of doing it is like, you're looking after me and so now I'm looking to you. And so there's a really interesting poetical play on words here. And so she calls the well, Bier Lahai Leroy, the living one, my beholder the living God who actually sees me and is watching everything I do. And she took, she took that as comfort. So let me challenge you this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, that whatever struggle is going on now in your life, and you can name it in your head, right? I want you to know this. The Lord sees you. He is not distant. He is not an old man with a beard somewhere on another planet looking down and wringing his hands about all this bad stuff. He sees your situation better than anybody sees your situation. You may be going through marriage problems. God sees it. You might be struggling with a heart problem, Ms. Reva, right? God sees it, right? Ms. Karen, you might be anxious about this Tuesday, but God sees it. He, you, you may be struggling with your job and you feel like you're ready to quit. Nobody sees it better than you do, better than God does. God sees your situation and He knows. In fact, He saw your situation when you were a sinner. And in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to us, the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through what? Faith. Not through good works, not through keeping the law, but by simply trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. Romans 10 says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be what? Saved. You'd say, Christ, I give my life to you. I make you the Lord of my life. I believe you died for my sins, that you were buried, and that you rose again, and you're coming again. I believe all that, and I trust you. And here's why. It says in verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you know Christ personally? Have you trusted in him? Would you bow your heads right now, if, if you don't mind? Would you pray? that God would reveal himself to you and to those who don't know him. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for, for loving us enough to send your promised son, Jesus. Lord, many times in our life, we try to do things our own way. We try to make compromises like Sarai and, and Abram did, and it causes nothing but trouble. But Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to realize it's not based on what righteousness we could do, but the righteous life of Christ who gave it all for us. 
Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, I pray that they would trust Christ today to be their Lord and their Savior. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you made that decision, this is my phone number. You can call me or text me. I'd love to talk to you about uh, being a new believer in Christ. Or if maybe you're not ready yet and you want to know more about that, man, I'd love to talk to you more. And this is the same number you can also use um, to, to text in questions today. But right now, we're gonna, before we do question and answer session, we're going to do communion. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to please stand, and we're going to read the communion scripture together. The communion scripture, one of them is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Would you read with me together on verse 23? For I received from the Lord what also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and giving thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supping, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he come. So that wh whoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily, he'll be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And so right now, we're going to enter into a time of, of self-examination where you just need to ask the Lord, is there sin in my life that I've not confessed? I want to be right with you. I want to be in good standing with you. And if you are a believer in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you're walking with the Lord in fellowship, you are welcome to participate in communion. As Jesus just said, this is the new covenant. Remember what we just learned about? Hagar is the old covenant. Sarai the, 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 and Isaac, the, the son of promise, is the new covenant. Jesus says, this represents that, that I am the fulfillment of the new covenant. Um, you may have noticed I got a new red mark on my face, which uh, I get things cut off of me all the time because I'm always battling with precancerous and sometimes cancerous things. And so I have to go to the dermatologist every four months. And so um, they said, you know, we're not sure, but we want to just cut this out. And that's the way sin is in our life. When a little bit appears, you've got to cut it out. You've got to ask for forgiveness. You don't let it spread because not only does it spread throughout your spiritual life, it spreads to the body. That's why this time of self-examination is so important. It's, it's cutting out the cancer, the, the sin in us. And what's interesting is that when I got this mark, I, I took off the Band-Aid and I'm like, oh, that's bigger than she said it was going to be, my dermatologist. And I'm like, oh, man, another scar? I mean, I have already a bad complexion as it is. And I'm like, another scar on my face? And it was like the Lord said to me, you want to talk about scars? You want to talk about scars on my hands, my feet, on my back? I'm like, yes, Lord, I'll take another scar. So let's, let's pray. And um, as you pray, uh, after you've had, taken time to pray, you can come and there'll be people who are serving you with gloves in place as precaution. And, uh, and then return to your seat and continue to pray, and then we'll take up the bread and, and the cup together when Hagar's life was broken into pieces. Jesus says, I see you. He says, and my life would be broken for you. Remember the Lord as you partake of the bread. When the Father looked down on earth and he saw our sinfulness in a world full of sin, he saw us. And Jesus, looking on the cross, down at those around him who had been his torturers, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He sees us. He knows our need. He loves us. He forgives us. His blood is the new covenant, the better covenant. By grace we are saved through faith because of Christ. Remember the Lord as you partake. Amen. All right, we're going to do question and answer time. Um, Ashley, would you like to come help me with that? Uh, church is a little bit longer today uh, because my sermon was longer and communion, but we're going to do question and answers today. If you need to be excused, we understand. So while this is loading, I'll ask my question. Um, I didn't have time to... Yeah, that's, that's one of the first questions. Okay. Go ahead, please. Um, so is there a parallel between Hagar being met by Christ at the well 
Oh. And the woman at the well. Yeah, that was actually in one of my slides. I didn't even oh, mention it? it. Yes. Okay. I, I think there. I think it's a hyperlink. Yeah. A, a preview of Jesus meeting the woman at the well, who was a woman that was forsaken out in the heat of the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Too many coincidences there, not right. to be a good parallel. And that she, he saw everything. And he she saw was. everything. He saw her yeah. Whole situation. And if you haven't watched that episode of The Chosen, you're missing out. That's, That's an so awesome, good. one of the best episodes. Okay. What about the Ouija board? What does the Bible have to say about it? Okay, so uh, Ouija boards are not a good thing, but it's not just like, uh, I don't know, who, who does the Ouija board? What brand? Same people make Monopoly, right? Yeah, it's like Hasbro anyway, games or something. Um, it's not a good thing, but you could do anything like a Ouija board, roll dice or whatever. Here's the problem. You're looking for a supernatural answer, but you're saying, but God, I don't want it from you. So is there anybody else out there that can answer? Well, the only other supernatural answer is Satan. Okay, so when you say, God, I don't want to read the Bible to find out what my future holds. I want someone else supernatural to guide my hands with this Ouija board. And uh, you don't want to dabble in that stuff. You don't want to dabble in tarot cards, Ouija boards, anything that's asking for a supernatural answer and saying, but God, I don't want it from you because that's why God gave us the Bible. So we're not supposed to communicate with the dead, but that's what seances do. That's popular today. A lot of people, a lot of young people are doing that doing seances and things like that, and, and you're just asking for inviting demonic influence into your life. Long Island medium and stuff like that. Yeah. I think one of the things that's most concerning is people get excited and like, well, it works. It's really working. Oh, the it things does. Work. Well, yeah. 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 <laughs> just because something works doesn't mean you should do it. Right. Abram went into Hagar. It worked. They had it a worked. kid, but look at all the problems it caused. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I think the other thing I noticed was um, when Jesus met Hagar, he asked her about the past, and he asked her about the future. He didn't ask about where she was right then. And you were saying before that the problem is that we are thinking about right now, right living now. in the That's moment, good. Good living for, for right now. Yeah. I don't have any other questions. Um, right. I do want to ask one, though. I thought it was interesting. Uh, in the Bible, it talks about the sons of promise, and then it's interesting that Hagar, again, had a son. There's no story anywhere in the Bible that I've read that has anything negative to do with uh, a, a female being born, a daughter being born instead of a son. I just thought it was really interesting that there's a lot of pressure on having a son, yeah. um, but there's there's no negativity associated with having a daughter instead no. of it. And, there, and I think it's on purpose to avoid confusion to say that, oh, well, the the child of not promise was a woman. And I'm just trying to emphasize that the Bible is incredibly equitable to women and right. um, and empowering to the value of women. Yeah, in the first century when sons were everything, and you say, well, that sounds so stupid. China has finally gone backward in their population. Why? Because they were aborting all the females because they want sons. So don't think that's something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's happening today. Um, but anyway, but Paul says, all of y'all are like the firstborn son. And then the women are like, us too? And he's like, yeah, all of you are joint heirs with Christ. You will rule and reign with Christ, whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter. So Paul, just like Jesus exalts women, where the culture always suppresses it. Yeah, it puts a lot of emphasis, though, again, on the authority of men. Not to say that, you know, authority and power is something that, everyone should want it's, yeah. it's just a role that's good it's yeah. just it's a playing a role it's and if you role. have a question you don't want to text me you raise your hand as well got one in all right romans 10 10 is there a difference between being justified and being saved why are they separated in this verse so i want to read good romans very 10. good question so imagine you go to court and you are found guilty okay and someone takes your place and goes to the prison for you you've been saved from the penalty but you're still guilty. But because Christ takes all that sin and gives you his righteousness, now you're also justified. So not only are you, you avoid the punishment, you're exonerated from the guilt of your sin. So that's, that's what justified and, and saved, that's the distinction between the two. Justification in, in meaning guilt? Yes. In fact, a good little tip to remember what the word justified means, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Justified, never sinned. It's like, well, you were guilty, but I'm, I'm not going to hold that against you. God's like, what sin? I remember your sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, I remember your sins no more. So God is saying that your rec- record has been wiped clean because you've had the righteousness of Christ imputed into your account. 
All right, cool. Anything yep. else? One more, and I'm not sure I understand this. You may have to explain this a little bit. How does the third son of Abraham play a part in history, like Ishmael and Isaac did? I don't know. I don't know if I understand that question, Manuel. Can you explain that? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, his third wife. Yeah, Abraham's third wife. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, actually, we'll get that in a few weeks. So I'm going to postpone an ignorant answer right now and not try to give you make one up here. So we'll get to that one in a few weeks. So all right, let's yeah. stand. All right. Good to be in God's house this morning, amen? Yeah. Amen. All right. So Lauren, would you dismiss us in prayer, please, where you're at? Just to-